course, there's a fear of the unknown, of being stuck in huge debt, and more. Fear is one of the major drivers of what we do and do not do, how we live and how we treat people we do not know very well. So we have some understandable fears and we may withdraw from people who might need our help, but we also know the commandments. We know our faith. Hi, this is the redheaded preacher, Richard Lanford, thanking you once again for tuning in to this week's edition of the Redheaded Preacher podcast. This is for Sunday, August 23rd, and the scriptures are read by Annie Nortz. She is uh, she recorded them remotely. That would only be seen if you were to watch the YouTube video on our channel. And the scriptures are Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 10. I'm preaching out of that. And there's also a gospel lesson from Matthew. Uh, There is conversation about trying to make the beginning a little more uh, attention-grabbing, something gentle but quick, a little different than just hearing my voice right away. So when time allows, uh, don't be surprised if you are a return listener and uh, there's something a little different first. So without any further, and the sermon title, the sermon title is... I don't have it in front of me, and I don't remember. Oh, here it is. It's called Ignorance, comma, Fear, comma, and Faithful Disobedience. Let's take a listen. For part of the summer, we have heard stories from Genesis about the patriarchs and matriarchs. Now the salvation story continues into the next book of the Bible. Our Old Testament lesson is Exodus, chapter 1, beginning at verse 8 and going through verse 10 of chapter 2. The Hebrews have moved into Egypt under Joseph's auspices. Joseph is long dead, and the Hebrew people have multiplied multiplied significantly. Our story picks up here. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the bar stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born, born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This ends the reading from Exodus. This morning, our journey through Matthew also carries on with a reading from chapter 16, verses 13 to 30. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, why do people say, who do people say that the son of man is? <clears throat> and they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Here ends our reading from Matthew and our scriptures for this morning's worship service. Thanks be to God for this, God's gracious and holy words. Most of us have heard this phrase, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That was written by philosopher George Santayana. He died in 1952. But is that the original? How about this? Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. That came from Edmund Burke of England, who died in 1797. I suppose that means that those who do not know the quote from Burke are destined to speak the quote from Santayana. Those who cannot remember the past 
and those who do not know history are not exactly the same. Those who cannot remember the past might have known it at one time, but ceased being able to recall it, and then you may repeat it. The second group, those who do not know history, are not forgetting it. They were without knowledge of that history to begin with. Enter the word ignorance. The first word of my sermon title. Do you know that's the root meaning of the word to be without knowledge or to be not knowing? It comes from the Greek. In Greek, the word for knowledge is, and has a silent G, gnosis. Hence, we have the hard G for us, or actually no, but this soft O, Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, which came out of a school of early Christianity, or heresy, it was later deemed, which believed that secret knowledge, or gnosis, is what saves us. And Jesus is the mediator of that. It's very exclusionary, and I could talk more about Gnosticism, but I just want to give that as an example of it means and has meant since the Greek, knowledge. We also have the word in English, agnostic, which describes one who believes we have no knowledge of God. It's not a saying, I don't believe God exists. It's saying there's no knowledge. You know, we can't know this. And the prefix of our letter I, but originally in Greek, to gnosis, and we have the opposite of gnosis, ignorance, one without knowing, one without knowledge. It doesn't mean somebody is stupid or dumb. It means they're without knowledge. And this brings us right to the Pharaoh in the start of Exodus. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. His ignorance of Joseph and how he had blessed Egypt titanically hundreds of years probably ago explains part of his fear, suspicion, and prejudice against Joseph's descendants who stayed in Egypt to make their home there. Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. His ignorance of Egypt's previous good relations with the Hebrews let him steer instinctively towards what empires generally do. Fear, and out of fear, intimidate and take over other peoples. You know, people are often afraid of what and whom they do not understand, whose history with theirs they are without knowledge, whose history with theirs they are ignorant. Pharaoh was ignorant. And he, he, he just saw the large number of Hebrews and became afraid. He did not approach them with talk of a, of a treaty or mutual cooperation agreement. There was no conversation uh, about a, what would today in the Middle East be a Palestinian state solution. There was no talk about any of that. It was just, you know, he wasn't going to repeat history, but maybe he set the precedent for others later because he did what I just read from scripture he was going to do. 
ignorance, which bore fear, which I'll talk about a little bit later, which brought on horrible things. Ignorance, without knowledge, not knowing. I've said before that the nine of us who took the UCC course on racism and the benefits of whiteness in our world learned an awful lot. Yes, I was reminded of some things I was taught in school, but there were other disturbing things I was never taught, of which I was ignorant, that we did learn in the course. Things in American history which explain a good deal of the origins and, and especially the perpetuation of racial discrimination on not merely personal scales about personal attitudes, but something that's built in, which we would call systemic, it's built in. And so that, of course, having received more of that knowledge in history, if not also the present day, increased my understanding of responses against oppression. I mentioned some of these lessons learned briefly in a sermon or two in, over the more recent summer months. Some of my fellow white peoples this summer expressed initial ignorance of Juneteenth Day. I did know what it is, but not nearly as fully as I came to because I read more about it. I joined most of them in my hearing for the first time of the massacre in Tulsa when what was known as Black Wall Street was burned down for no reason other than envy and bigotry. Last year, some of us learned in the sermon in Laurel Park about Chicago's Red Summer of 1919, and I talked about that and the significance of August 1619. Well, one of the things Beth and I were ignorant of and learned about was the planned segregation of communities in the mid-20th century, where by design, and really starting in the 30s under FDR, neighborhoods which had been successfully integrated were taken down by federal planners and segregated ones were created with help from the interstate highway construction, which would went through neighborhoods and people had to move. There was one that came through two blocks away from where I used to live in southeast Minneapolis. And so neighborhoods were separated by where the highways went through. We discovered that the GI Bill, which, bene which benefits helped our soldiers coming back from World War II, if not Korea, was pretty much only open to white veterans, as were favorable mortgage interest rates offered by the FHA and VA, while our black Americans and black veterans were largely redlined into communities deemed by bankers as not good for investment. As far as certain kinds of employment opportunities, well, unions often kept African Americans out also. I don't know just when that stopped, but it was certainly a part of unions. And so that also was a middle-class employment stopper in some places. So in these redlined neighborhoods that I've mentioned and about which I was largely ignorant, not so, so not many great businesses planted themselves in those neighborhoods. There were fewer homes to own and more apartments to rent. And if you did have a mortgage, it was really more of a contract with its own unique strict stipulations that kept you under the thumb of the property owning bank, which as it was explained, was not like a regular mortgage. It was much stricter. 
If you were a renter, you were unable to build up wealth through home equity that you could pass on to your children. Ultimately, all of this led to a lack of tax revenue for those areas, and that meant disproportionately underfunded, under-maintained schools, hospitals, roads, bridges, and business-slash-employment opportunities. Well, redlining and discrimination in housing has been illegal since LBJ. But as I noted just a week ago, it still happens. When one adds to this the often toxic, not always, but often toxic dynamic between communities of color and law enforcement with their own mutual histories, we can see there is a lot to learn and to listen to that a lot of us did not realize or care to really learn before. Now, unlike Pharaoh's ignorance, which led to fear, our not knowing, once brought to light, is not meant to lead to fear, but to something higher, something more noble, more educated, and more actively allied with righteousness. Okay, let's return to Exodus, shall we? It gets worse before it gets better. You know the story. Fear comes quickly, as I said, upon the heels of ignorance, and it is not just on Pharaoh's part. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless. The Egyptians running things had fear, dread of the long-time interlopers where post-population kept growing. Fear is a huge subject, of which, which is worthy of many sermons. I've preached on it more than once before. And some things and eventualities and people are good to be afraid of. You and I have fears as individuals. Fear of uh, having enough to go to college or to start a new business or to retire company. Fears over getting COVID or some other serious affliction. Fears over changes in life that we cannot control, and so on. You and I can have fears for institutions, like fears about St. Peter's, the upcoming electoral process, the financial health of Medicare and Social Security, or college scholarships or tuition costs. Of course, there's a fear of the unknown, of being stuck in huge debt, and more. Fear is one of the major drivers of what we do and do not do, how we live and how we treat people we do not know very well. So we have some understandable fears, and we may withdraw from people who might need our help, but we also know the commandments. We know our faith, and sometimes there's a tension, there's a dilemma. So what do we do? What do you do? What do I do? What does St. Peter's do? Or not do? Well, we do know where fear led the Egyptians. We know that fear of the other has set us back, at least in race relations. Some of the answer, as I said about ignorance, 
is spending the time and energy learning what we do not know about the history of racial injustice in our land. The more we understand, the less we should fear learning more and seek to be allies for what is good. So there is another fear in the story. The Egyptians and the pharaohs fear is not the only one. And that's the fear I imagine that the midwives, Moses' mother and sister, felt after the brutal edict came down to kill all newborn male Hebrew babies. The back of the bulletin today, if you have the electronic version and you scroll to the end, it talks about Shifra and Pua. And it's almost like a little dialogue at some point. And uh, so it portrays Pua and Shifra getting taken to the palace so Pharaoh himself could confront them. You are lowly Hebrew midwives in the presence of the supreme cruel authority. You know what you've been doing. He suspects. He wonders what's going on. These male Hebrew babies are still toddling around. Would you be imprisoned? or killed over the question of not killing the male babies born under their care? Well, we heard from Annie's reading how the midwives, who, unlike Pharaoh, are honored with names, got out of that. They may have feared Pharaoh, but they feared God even more. Their awe and respect for the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, outweighed any fear of the Egyptian courts. They would rather be accountable to God and have done the right, life-loving thing, and pay a price for that, than play along with Pharaoh, do what is sinful in God's eyes, and pay a different kind of price for placating Pharaoh. Well, I imagine you've heard messages about these ladies before. That the actors were women, at least second-class citizens in their time. There were no male heroes in this story. That's itself fantastic. It's revolutionary and illuminating about God. Then add to the fact that women are the protagonists and the ones with courage and are acting that what they did was civil disobedience. Out of faithfulness to the Lord of life and the God of the Hebrews, they refused to murder their newborn Hebrew boys. They lied about why it took place. They said no to the rules, to the ruling authority, to what they were told by Pharaoh to do in order to say yes to God. They refused to cooperate with the forces of ignorance, fear, and, yes, death. They chose instead to cooperate with the God of righteousness, the God of hope, and the God of life. They were courageous. They resisted. They pushed back the only way they knew how, and it made an historical difference. Without them, would there have been a Moses, an Exodus, a covenant at Sinai, an Israel, who ultimately gave us Jesus? What is also cool in their faithful disobedience is that it was not just the two midwives. Their co-conspirators, of course, 
included first Moses' mother, who must have been afraid of getting caught whilst she hid him for three months. And when she put him out in the basket in the Nile, you know, you want to be quiet, be quiet, baby, be quiet, don't cry. Somebody might, you know, there might be baby police around. They were already suspicious, right? Moses' mother. Have you ever uh, done something the authorities would have been angry at you about and maybe taken action against you? You may recall, and this is a very minor comparison, of course, you may recall me telling the story of the spring of 1984 when I took part in the theft of the clapper of the bell in the tower of my dorm, Alexander Hall. This is the bell that told bringing everyone to class and out of class throughout the day. So in this theft, you didn't just walk up there and open the door and you know, pull a few ropes. It involved cutting into a bathroom ceiling, one of those dropped ceilings, and then someone turning off an alarm circuit breaker, which I think was more involved than just turning off a circuit breaker, because this wasn't the first time this had been done. Uh, then you've got to bring along the tools to actually remove the clapper from the bell and more. There was quite a handful of us involved. I photographed the steps along, this, along the way, and I still have the pictures. I guess you'd call it vandalism. We were fulfilling Alexander Hall tradition, and I was as scared as scared can be of getting caught. When the bell was supposed to ring students to class at 8 a.m. the next morning, I made sure, morning person that I am, that I was off campus. I went over to Princeton University and went to Firestone Library. I did that for days. When my friend Wes Brown rapped on my dorm door and imitated the voice of the campus security chief, Stanley McKay, I jumped. When a professor made reference to me, knowing who else was involved in the clapper caper, I was petrified. How did he find out? How did he know I was involved? I was afraid of being caught, of getting kicked out of school, and maybe losing my degree because I was a senior. I feared being found out. Well, certainly, what Moses' mother went through in being afraid of being caught was much, much more serious. But I get the fear. You did it. You're doing it. Back to Exodus. What is cool is that the very daughter of Pharaoh also stuck it to her dad's edict. She took Moses from the Nile. It's a Hebrew baby. It's a Hebrew baby boy. And raised him in the court of Pharaoh as her own. Miriam, the sister, named later as was Moses' mom, she was bold to approach her and asked about finding a Hebrew nursemaid for her. And by this time, I think the princess might have started to figure out what was going on, that it would be his own mother. She didn't have a problem with that. It took five women to deliver Moses, to rescue Moses. And they, they took charge over their response to Pharaoh, over, and they took charge of their choices to choose God, not Pharaoh, to choose Moses, to choose life, and to choose hope. All five, including one of the elites, chose defiance, and in the case of the Hebrew women, we don't know anything about the Pharaoh's daughter, they chose faithful defiance 
over ignorance and over fear and over policies of death. They are an inspiration to those who would say no to injustice and yes to Jesus Christ and the realm of God. Thanks be to God who gives them to us. It's good news. I hope you found that message uh, educational as well as challenging and meaningful. I realize that I have touched on some of these points previously, but I believe that sometimes repetition helps us really draw on something and recall it later on if we're in conversation or if topics come up. Thanks for listening, for tuning in. Uh, Next week we will be recording from Laurel Park. It's not exactly an open set. Uh, We are still doing our coronavirus uh, precautions, so it's not a normal service as if we were a meeting at St. Peter's. Uh, A few people are going to be invited to come. No one in particular. There's an open invitation to members uh, with masks and keeping their social distance outdoors. So that'll be maybe just a little bit of the different ambiance in the recording. Thanks again. And may God bless your week. Bye.